0: you can have your Bibles handy. Uh, We won't necessarily be using them uh, a great deal this evening, which of course is a phrase I don't like to say uh, as a regular rule in the church. Uh, However, we are doing something a little bit different this evening uh, as we talk about a unique passage of Scripture. Last time we were together... We were studying, we studied through 1 John 5, verses 5 through 10, and we considered the witness of God, which exists within us through his indwelling Holy Spirit. We thought through uh, that concept uh, there in 1 John chapter 5. And on our journey to that application, we walked through what is often called, in theological circles at least, the Johannine comma. The Johannine comma is the second half of 1 John 5, verse 7, and the first half of 1 John 5, verse 8, which forms really the most clear enunciation of the doctrine that we call the doctrine of the Trinity in our Bibles. What we find, however, is that it is removed from nearly every Bible translation, with the notable exception of the King James. The New King James, the Young's Literal, and the Webster Bible. And I told you last time we were together that there is actually, in this case, it's, it's not usually the case when we talk about translation issues, uh, but in this case there is very much a legitimate controversy here over whether or not this should be in the text and it is worth our time addressing. Should this comma be included in the Greek text that we call the Textus Receptus, or should it not have been there at all? And of course, you know the conclusion I'm going to come to by virtue of the fact that last week when I preached through this passage, I preached through that portion of the text as if it were Scripture, and I preached it as Scripture because I believe it to be Scripture. So the message this evening is going to be significantly more academic in, in, in a different sense. I mean, a lot of my sermons are academic, but this one a little bit less just walking through the, the, the elements of the text, and more so, well, more of a lecture in some senses than a sermon, though I still intend to draw us into a manner of application this evening as I always try to do. But this is important, and I've said this with many such arguments, that when we talk about the things that we believe here at Legacy Baptist Church and some of the uniquenesses that we have as it relates to doctrine and practice— Uh, especially when we talk through some of the the doctrinal things that aren't necessarily even out of step with Orthodox Christianity as a whole, but maybe out of step with some of the arguments that you might hear if you're engaging with a Jehovah's Witness or a Latter-day Saints. And and they would bring you to a passage of Scripture. and, And, of course, you don't do this for a living. And so you're not going to have all the time every answer right at the tip of your tongue, right on the top of your mind, and the ability to articulate with clarity some reason as to why you believe what you believe. But even when you don't necessarily have that reason on the tip of your tongue, there is something very important about knowing that you have heard a rational reason for something that when you heard it and you listened to it and you were directed into it, directed you into a clarity as it related to an issue, which what it does is it it prevents a crisis of faith, right? Where somebody comes to you and throws something at you, that your pastor never talked about because it's really technical or confusing or he doesn't understand it himself. And so he just doesn't talk to you about it. And then somebody else comes and they have a verse and they proof text you to that verse and you go, oh no, this throws everything I believe into, into, into confusion. And you and I, many of us, have seen people where a simple interaction like that has, has thrown a person into a spiral out of which they do not recover. And while we can't have the answer to every single question, when we have opportunities to think through these things together, and for us to walk away saying, well, maybe we didn't even come to a perfect conclusion. And by the way, tonight, you're not going to come, you're not going to leave here 100% convinced or 100% certain in anything. As I've told you about the translation issue before, for those of you that have gone through the, the many things that I have taught, I, I teach on the translation issue, we are not here to receive 100% certainty. There's too much history, there's too much, there's too much in the past for us to come to 100% certainty. What we seek and what we find in our position is what I call maximum certainty, so that as we walk away from our position and the reason why we use the King James Bible, we walk away saying, I have maximum certainty that what we have here is bears the marks of specifically God's inspiration and divine preservation of his word. Whereas the other texts as we have studied them, what they lend us to is a, a feeling of uncertainty. And that's why we have chosen what we have chosen as it relates to our particular direction with Bible translations. And so, while a person can agree or disagree with uh, this text or or, or any of the other things that we talk about as it relates to controversial doctrines or controversial viewpoints or confusing passages of Scripture, while there is often wiggle room to disagree about these things, and that's fine, what I want you to walk away with this evening is, is the confidence that whether you agree with it or not, whether it's maybe a little more confusing, whether it even maybe challenges some of the assumptions that you have made about the the nature of the text issue, you're going to walk away, I hope, saying, there was a legitimate rationale for why this made it into our Bibles. And then when we take that legitimate rationale and we filter it through all of our other thought processes on the nature of why we use the King James Version, and specifically why we hold to the Greek text that undergirds the King James Version, well then, it gives us that place again where, where we find ourselves in a measure of confidence. So let's take a moment to remember what we're talking about here. In First John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, the Bible says this, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. Now, the vast majority of the Bibles remove the portion of the text that you see highlighted here. On the screen in yellow, and I uh, just, just before the service, I, I, I said, "You know there's always a, a Bible floating around that's another translation here, because we have another church that meets in here. So I went and I found this Bible in the back there, and it 's a new American standard. And if I open up this new American standard to First John chapter five, verse seven, verse seven says, "For there are three that testify." And verse eight says, "The spirit and the water and the blood, and the and the three are in agreement." That's what I read here in this Bible. And then of course, there is a footnote, and that footnote says, "A few late manuscripts add in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that testify on earth, the spirit, and then of course, would go on the spirit, the water." and the blood, and these three agree in one. So we see here that in many of the Bibles that, that, that are other translations, there will be a footnote, there will be some comment that says other manuscripts uh, include this, and that's to try to leave some measure of parity with the King James, so that if a person's reading, uh, uh, they, they understand where those words went and such. But what we don't find, of course, in this Bible, or really in any other, is a, a rational explanation for why any, in, in, in any sense other than the sense that, that the Greek text that undergirds this and then these translations themselves believe, which is those words aren't supposed to be in your Bible, so we didn't put them in your Bible. And so we have that portion in our King James Bibles, that, that, that portion that, that we filled in there, and that's because that portion exists in the vast majority of the Greek texts that undergird it. Now, when I say that, 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 that's actually maybe a little misleading. It exists in the vast majority of the textus receptus compiled texts that undergird the King James Bible. And the way that I state that is specific, we'll talk about why in a little bit. Now, to give uh, just that that slight background, most of you have gone through my teaching on this issue. But just to give that slight background on this issue, remember that the King James translation, when it was translated and finished in 1611, uh, were translated out of a set of manuscripts that is often called the Textus Receptus. uh, That's Latin for the Received Text And this was a, com- a, a compiled text where, beginning with a man named Des- Desiderius Erasmus and going through several other editors, they took the Greek manuscripts that they had access to and they combined those manuscripts together... Uh, t- making sure that they had what, what would have been the most, uh, um, uh, the, the, the texts that were most in agreement, spelling, all of those various things, and combined it together into a, a supertext, if you will. And that supertext is the combination of all of the scholarship and the texts that they had at hand as a means by which to create a, a more accurate. Text That then could be carried forward from generation to generation. And it began with Erasmus. He went through several uh, revisions and then several other editors went through several revisions as well. And, And that brings us to this place where we have this body of manuscripts called the Received Text or the Textus Receptus. Now the other bibles uh, every bible with the exception generally of the four that I mentioned there the King James the New King James the Young's literal translation and the Webster Bible are actually translated from a very different text and that text was compiled beginning in 1831 and more or less finished in 1881 that was called the Westcott and Hort those would be the two men that were the editors of it and they compiled a different text and they did so under a very different set of rules as to what should and should not be in the text. So it's called the critical Greek text as a general rule because what they leaned heavily upon as a means by which to compile that text was the rules of modern textual criticism that were derived within that time of the Enlightenment, the 17 and 1800s, as a means by which to uh, set a standard set of literary rules in place in order to derive Um, more accurate versions of ancient texts. And we're not going to get into all of the ins and outs of it today, but long story short is, as we study the history of of the Christian church, there are great concerns in my heart, as well as in the hearts of many, as to this critical Greek text. Um, in in law, it's called the fruit of the poison tree doctrine. And the idea is, and we kind of thought about it this morning just a little bit in our time, when when Jesus said, if the roots are evil, then the the fruit becomes evil as well. And so when we look at these tenets of of textual criticism, these secular tenets of of textual criticism, as we look at how these um, men compiled this text, it bears the marks of, of humanism. It bears the marks of a text that use methods of of thought and of direction that actually set aside the doctrines of inspiration and preservation that discount the idea that God has preserved his word. And instead they say... We're going to treat the Bible as if it's not preserved. We're going to treat the Bible as if it's not inspired. We're going to treat the Bible as if it's any other book. And then we're going to judge it on that merit as we compile it together. And some would say, well, yes, if the Bible has that much integrity, then you can treat it like any other book, except it's not any other book. Because God has promised to preserve his word. And that's where we start to see fundamental inconsistencies between a text that did not exist anywhere until 1881 and a text which was compiled in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, but which bears the marks of texts that were in churches and preserved throughout every generation of the church. And of course, that's just a a brief Cliff Notes version of what goes through our minds that has lent us to the, the conviction that the text that undergirds the King James Bible is a text that more accurately and clearly bears the marks. It gives us greater certainty in the marks of biblical preservation, a doctrine that we believe the word of God attests to and that we hold to very firmly, that God has not just inspired his word in the originals, but that he has gone out of the way in himself to preserve his word for every generation so that what we have today is a reflection of what God desired us to have without controversy, now, that, that's, that's that, that, that brief idea. And it's not even so much, as we've said before, that the King James Version is the thing that we are loyal to in and of itself, but rather the Greek text that undergirds it. Only, there aren't a whole lot of translations that come out of that Greek text because once the King James was penned, people didn't feel like they needed another. And there were no other real translations that came out until the translations, the revised standard that came out on the, the, the first version on the basis of that 1881 Westcott and Hort critical Greek text. And since then, there have been dozens upon dozens, but they all follow that critical Greek text foundation. So, if someone ever did put together a very well, well, well put together, and, and many of the English translations that we see today are good translations, they're good translations. We just believe they're good t- translations of a bad text. And that's our, that's our concern, right? So and that, that's a little bit of that, that reminder as, to, as to, to what we've been looking at here. And, and what I'd like to do in our time together, for the rest of our time together today, is I'm actually going to walk through a lot of history. And I'm going to talk about the charges that, that are levied against this passage of Scripture and the evidence for this passage that we find, and as I do so, I will attempt to be fairly complete with, the, with one notable exception. That apart from the Schmitz, who were here when I taught this last on a Tuesday night 10 years ago, um, no one here is going to get the Greek argument tonight. I'm not going to get into the Greek. Uh, there's not enough time to get into the Greek. Um, you are all just going to be taking my word for it anyway because you don't know the Greek. However, if you are curious, I would be happy to go back to it on a Tuesday night to walk you through the Greek text, to show you what's happening in the Greek and to show you why it is, there are also some legitimate concerns when this passage of Scripture, when when this portion, the, the, the yellow portion there, when it's taken out of the text, the Greek gets weird. The grammar, the construction gets really weird when this portion is taken out. You put that portion back in and the Greek's no longer weird. Makes pretty good sense. And so I'm just going to say that, but I'm not going to get into that. You're, you're just going to have to trust me on that. Even if I got into it, you'd still just be trusting me anyway. If you have any further questions, we can talk about it um, uh, in another forum. So, that, so, with that being said, let's talk about the essence of this controversy. The first thing I want to say about this controversy is that none of it should—none uh, of us should be surprised that it exists. The doctrine of the Trinity. Is one of the most evident distinctions of Christianity that we have, especially among monotheistic world religions. It is actually one of those charges that's levied against the ignorant, uh, that's levied by the ignorant against us that, oh, you're not a monotheistic religion. You have this, this trinity. Well, no, we are a monotheistic religion because we believe that it is one God in three distinct persons, right? And so we have that, but, but, but the other great monotheistic religions have nothing of the sort, right? Islam has nothing of the sort. Judaism has nothing of the sort. So this is one of the very unique things among monotheistic religions that we believe in this Godhead, this three-in-one, this trinity, uh, as, as we call it. And it's always been this way. That this is no more evident than in, even in the times of the the epistles, it's no more evident that it's always been this way, that there's always been this attack against this idea of of the Godhead. uh, No more evident than in 1 John itself, right? As we've been walking through 1 John, we've seen several times John bring up allusions to this controversy, right? In John chapter 2, John addressed those who claim that Jesus is not the Christ. And he said, if they don't believe Jesus is is the Christ, then they're not of God. In John chapter 4, John says that we need to try the spirits whether they be of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So there was confusion. There was controversy as to whether Jesus had come in the flesh. And then, of course, in 1 John 5, 5, as we talked about last week, There were those that claimed that Jesus is not the Son of God. So even in 1 John, in 1 John alone, we see three different flavors, three different variations of attacks on the person and work and relationship of Jesus Christ to the Father. And the doctrine of the Trinity really settles all these controversies, doesn't it? So we should not be surprised that a passage which so clearly articulates this mysterious three-in-one nature of the Godhead would face much attack. That being said, however, most of what you read regarding this issue of 1 John 5, 7, and 8, in our time today, most of what you would read from a study Bible, um, as, as, we read the, as I read to you the New American Standard, and, and, and I, I just read you its footnote that says only a few late manuscripts have, have evidence for this. As we read that, what we need to remember is that the majority of the people who are who who deny the existence of this portion of the text and the majority of the people who might even, as it were, um, have strong feelings about this portion of the text, they're not attacking the Trinity, most of them. Right, Most of them are Trinitarians. Most of them are not attacking this portion of Scripture because they're trying to tear down the the, the Godhead. Right? These are text scholars. These are Orthodox believers. These are people who simply don't believe that it ought to be in the Bible. And and many of them coming from a very genuine perspective that says, look, if it's not supposed to be there, then we don't want it there. And again, when it comes to this particular passage, they have good reason to argue that. There's no shortage of dogmatic statements uh, and and people who will be dogmatic one way or another, but but we need to remember here that just because a person is attacking this passage of Scripture does not mean that they're trying to attack inspiration, does not mean they're trying to attack preservation, it does not mean that they're trying to attack the Trinity. We, among just about everyone else in our society today, can get very defensive when we're criticized. But the blessing of truth is that truth stands on its own two feet. Which means I don't need to feel defensive when someone asks me to defend the truth. I just need to defend the truth. And if I can't defend the truth, that's a problem with me. Right? That's not a problem with them. And in this issue, we've not done a good job at levying a defense. In fact... Even among King James Bible editors and and, 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 uh, um, proponents over the years, there's been great confusion on this issue. Uh, If you were to open a Ryrie study Bible, named after the great theologian and teacher Charles Ryrie, uh, I have Ryrie books on my shelf. His basic theology book is the most accessible theology book I know. It's an excellent theology book. Yet if you open the, the Ryrie King James Version Study Bible, you will find this when you get to 1 John 5, 7, and 8. Verse 7 should end with the word record. The rest of verse 7 and all of verse 8 are not in any ancient Greek manuscripts. And so even Charles Ryrie, a man that we all would respect, that, that I would have no qualms about, uh, you know, if, if it were that time and that place, having him in, in, behind this pulpit teaching and preaching, I have, I have absolutely no hesitation pointing to his book on theology or any of his books and saying, read those books, those will help you. And, even, but, but, and he, even, he even felt as though in the King James Version translation that he needed to let those who were reading this translation know that there's not a lot of Greek texts that reflect this, 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 this translational decision in the King James Bible. And what I said this last week, and I say it again. While I wholeheartedly disagree with them on the issue at hand, when Charles Ryrie put that into this Bible, it is not without some measure of reason and merit. So let's talk about why. In his criticism on the Johannine Kama, the famous Mennonite brethren theologian D. Edmund Hybert said this. The external evidence is overwhelmingly against the authenticity of these words, commonly known today as the Johannine comma. They are found in no Greek unseal manuscripts. Those of you that have gone through my teaching know what the unseals and the cursives and such are. I don't have time to explain all of that this evening. No Greek cursive manuscripts before the 15th century contain them. Only two known Greek cursives, cursive 629 of the 14th century and 61 of the 16th century, have the addition in their text. Cursive 635 of the 11th century has it in the margin in a 17th century hand. The 88th of the 12th century, that would be cursive 88, has it in the margin by a modern hand. In these cursives, the words are uh, are a manifest translation from a late recension of the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Greek and the Hebrew, originally done by Jerome. No ancient version of the first four centuries gives them. He's not quite right there, by the way. Nor is it found in the oldest Vulgate manuscripts. He's not quite right there either. None of the Greek church fathers quoted the words contained in this interpolation. He's not quite right there either. As Foulet points out, their failure to cite is an inexplicable omission if they knew it. In fact, how could they not have used it in the Trinitarian controversies? So Hebert makes a number of good arguments here, uh, some that are not incorrect. As I said, a few of them that that are not quite right. Though in his further criticism, if you were to continue to read what he was saying, um, he would go on to cite an oft cited myth that I'll break down for you this evening about the man who began, who, who was an, the initial editor of the Textus Receptus. wasn't even called the Textus Receptus yet at the time, Desiderius Erasmus. He, he gives a myth about him which, which we'll need to break down together this evening. But what we do find in that quote, which helps us think through this argument, are these four main criticisms. First, there are very few manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, where the comma is found. Second, it appears quite late in the Latin. Third, it's lacking in other ancient texts. And fourth, it was not used during the historical Trinitarian controversies. I'm not really going to touch that last one this evening. Um, Maybe another time. But I do want to address the other three, though only in summary fashion. And in doing so, again, I'm not going to prove beyond doubt that the comma should be in the text. I can't do that. It's very hard to prove things from history (laughs) because history is written by someone, interpreted by someone. We have certain texts. We don't have others. So what we do is we look for a flow. And that's what we've always done with the King James Version and the Textus Receptus. We've looked for a flow of the hand of God through history, and that's why we've landed where we've landed. And in the same way, we'll see a little bit of a flow this evening. And that's what we're going to be looking for. It may not be convincing to you, and I'm fine with that. But there is a rationale behind it, and that's what we need to see. There is a consistency with the faith approach that undergirds our entire philosophy of Bible translation that I believe we'll see in this as well. A philosophy which compels us to rely upon the Textus Receptus above those other Greek texts and the English Bible that comes from the Textus Receptus, which is the King James we believe that God has divinely inspired his words from the original writings, but that he has also providentially preserved his word for every generation of the Christian church so that every generation of the Christian church has had access to the complete word of God. That doesn't mean every person, right? Many of them couldn't read. Many of them did not have uh, necessarily the, the direct access that there was a church right next door that would have a copy, but that, that the access to God's word was never completely extinguished from a generation of the church, So the position that we hold is, by definition, a faith position, right? We have to believe. The only thing that gives us any confidence in the veracity of the King James as undergirded by the Textus Receptus is the fact that we believe that God had a divine hand in preserving His Word throughout the generations. And so when we say (coughs) that this evening, as we look through this history, we're going to put a few dots together and then we're going to have to take the rest on faith, that doesn't phase our position, Because our position is a faith position by default. We acknowledge that. We acknowledge that there are manuscripts that they have today that they didn't have back in the 1600s that we are not accounting for, but that we have seen a flow and that that flow gives us confidence in the faith position that we hold. And so we don't pretend that that's not there. But we also allow for the testimony of God's word, of his active role in preservation to be the foundational assumption for what we believe about the text. And this is what led us, leads us to plant our feet confidently in the Textus Receptus camp, by extension, the King James Bible. And by this same interpretive method, I find this confidence that the Johannine comma has every right to be in our Bibles. And so let's walk through the argument. The center of the, deba- the, the debate, as we read it in, in that quote, was by, by, by Hybert, is that the comma, the Johannine comma, is found in very few Greek manuscripts. And this is very true. And in a manner of speaking, this puts us in a unique position if we want to defend the comma where the shoe is on the other foot. If you recall, generally, as I talk about the nature of the King James Translation and the Textus Receptus, I talk about how there are thousands of Greek manuscripts that are preserved and how, how they all agree with each other, and there are very few that have Inspired many of the tremendous variations that we see in critical Greek text, so normally we 're relying upon this idea that the, the textus Receptus has this vast number uh, relatively speaking of agreeing manuscripts, and the critical text takes a very few number and overrides this large number because of the way critical Textual criticism is done. Higher higher textual criticism is done. Well, now the shoe is a little bit on the other foot, where we are trying to argue that though it's in very few Greek manuscripts, it might actually have a measure of validity to it. So let me give you the numbers here. Many of the manuscripts, uh, of the many manuscripts in existence, the textual scholar Bruce Metzger, who perhaps some of you are familiar with, points out that there are only eight out of 5,300 manuscripts that contain the Johannine comma. Now, that is one-tenth of one percent. That is a very, very low number. But that number is a bit misleading, very similar to what you might get in the media today where they throw out numbers and you say, I wonder what's behind those numbers and you realize that those numbers may be accurate from a certain point of view. Well, it turns out that of those 5,300 manuscripts, only 501 of them even contain the epistle of First John. So, we can throw out all the ones that don't contain First John because they, they don't contain the comma, but they also don't, don't contain the comma because they don't contain First John. So now we're talking about 8 out of 501. But not even that because he left out a couple. There's actually 11 out of 501 that contain the comma. Now that's about 2%. Still quite a low number. Several manuscripts, as Hybert said, contain it in the margins, written a little bit later for one reason or another, um... We could argue about why they put it in the margins, um, whether or not that was because they realized that it ought to be in the text or whether or not they were trying to edit the text in some way, shape, or form. But that still isn't many, one way or another. And if, it, if this were our only data point, we would naturally have to concede that the comma doesn't have a lot of evidence, although I'll speak to it in a little bit. Words, phrases, and verses in our Bible have been taken out of the, te- out of the King James for less. Um, but to help us think through this, let's walk through a bit of history. In 286 AD, the emperor Diocletian divided Rome as a means by which to attempt to stabilize the empire. Uh, there was some talk over the last couple of weeks um, in, our, um, in our politics of, the, the words national divorce have come out a lot, right? And the idea of that is that we are a very unstable nation right now, and there are, there are various uh, politicians and theoreticians that are, are, are throwing out the idea that maybe uh, we need to have an amicable splitting of the country before things go bad. That's kind of the idea that happened here, uh, beginning in 286 with Diocletian, when he began to attempt to divide the Roman Empire as a means by which to stabilize the empire. It, is stretched, it was stretched too thin, uh, there was not enough money to go around, uh, there, there were a lot of enemies on all sides, and so the empire began to split. Now this would not be complete, it was not a clean pro- process, no No split of an empire is going to be a clean process. Uh, But by 395 AD, Emperor Theodosius, there was a general demarcation and things were relatively stable. And I say that because if you look at a map of how these empires shifted over time, it was never really stable. But relatively speaking, there was a measure of stability. These became independent empires with separate emperors. The Western Empire had its capital in Rome, and the Eastern Empire had its capital in Constantinople, named after Emperor Constantine, who was an a, a, uh, empire in, in the, the fourth century there, A.D. Now, the Western Empire would continue to be called the Roman Empire, and the Eastern Empire would generally take on the name of the Byzantine Empire. And this division was not just a division of politics. In the church, things were not particularly stable either. Now, there's a whole lot more history here than what we can address, but as the Western and Eastern Empire settled, the cultural and theological differences between this united church, which was initially called the Catholic Church, but this was not yet the Roman Catholic Church. It was simply the idea of a universal or a singular church. Uh, all of the efforts had been made to try to keep the churches unified throughout the Empire of Rome. When the empire split into two, it uh, threw a lot of things into question as it related to, to the nature of the, the interaction in these churches. And so this began to lead to two separate church systems, one in the West being called the Roman Catholic Church, and then one in the East that's often called the Eastern Orthodox Church. And the Roman Catholic Church, as the Western Empire was split from the East, um, the, the Roman Empire leaned into Latin, a lot more. If you recall, even in the time of Jesus, when when Herod uh, nailed the the accusation of Jesus to the cross, it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And Greek was still, by and large, the, the the language of commerce. It was the language of the common man. So you would have Latin as it would relate to various Roman things, but Greek was a a common and acceptable usage throughout the Roman Empire. Well, as the Roman Empire divided east to west, all of the Greek-speaking and Greek culture was in the east. And so the Western culture began uh, a a process of of living into and and stepping into more of their, their Latin as opposed to the Greek. And so within that time, in the 4th century, particularly A.D., uh, we hear of a man named Jerome, and he puts together this translation of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament into the Latin that we call the Latin Vulgate. And that's happening in the 4th century over in the West. Now, in the East, this was not a thing. In the East, the primary cultural influence was Greek. Greek. And so the East had no reason to translate or to switch over to some other translation of the Bible. And this is one of the things that we talk about when we talk about the text issue, right? That when we, when we look at where the texts come from, from which we find the translation or the, 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 the Greek text, where, where they come from, from which we, we find these compilation texts, most of what we're finding is scattered throughout Europe, some in Russia— as they fled after the Muslim conquest, the Byzantine Empire. They took those texts with them, and those texts had been rooted in the Byzantine Empire, and they were still Greek, specifically because the Byzantine Empire stayed Greek. So the West, the Latin Vulgate, becomes the text. In the East, the Greek remains influential. And it was not just Jerome's version of the Vulgate, but but Old Latin. There were Old Latin translations prior to the Vulgate as well. Now, the development of the Eastern Orthodox Church is very different than the development of the Roman Catholic Church. Because the Eastern Empire was made up of these states. They they were primarily Greek-speaking, and they continued to be Greek-speaking, as I said, until 1453 when um, Constantinople fell to... To to the Muslims, and we talked already about the fact that Jerome finished this Vulgate in the fourth century. In the East, there was a major controversy that came in the fourth century. In the same century that Jerome was translating his, his his Latin Vulgate, in the East there was a controversy over a theological system that's called Arianism. Arianism was first espoused by a man named Arius, and he lived from 256 to 336 AD. He taught that Jesus, being the Son of God, and specifically that the Bible says Jesus is the begotten Son of God, that this means that Jesus is a created being— Created by the Father before the world began, and so he is not co-eternal with the Father, nor co-equal with the Father in that way, but is rather subordinate to the Father. Now, we still see vestiges, influences of this heresy upon the the, the, the religious world today, specifically if you study Jehovah's Witness doctrines, the, the doctrines of, of the Mormons, uh, you will find a, a domination of this sort of thinking as it relates to the nature of Jesus' relationship to God the Father. But Arianism was not just a system that, that had some influence in the day. Arianism came to dominate the Eastern Church in the 4th and 5th centuries. Trinitarians, in fact, within the 4th and 5th centuries, were banished. They were exiled from the Eastern Orthodox Church. Emperor Constantine himself gave the church the authority to ban and to remove Trinitarians from any positions of authority within the church. And then, in Constantine's day, he commissioned a man named Eusebius of Caesarea to prepare official copies of Greek scriptures that were distributed throughout the empire. Now, to this end, we might not be surprised that the manuscripts that, that were distributed throughout the empire might have had some revisions and may have even removed this First John 5, 7, and 8 text entirely because it would have been very troubling to Arians to have to explain 1 John 5, 7, and 8. Now, we know such things were happening. As a matter of fact, Jerome himself, this is fascinating... When Jerome wrote the prologue to his canonical epistles, he wrote this. Just as these are properly understood and so translated faithfully by interpreters into Latin, without leaving ambiguity for the readers nor allowing the variety of genres to conflict, especially in that text where we read the unity of the Trinity is placed in the first letter of John, where much error has occurred at the hands of unfaithful translators contrary to the truth of faith, who have kept just the, th- the three words water, blood, and spirit, in this edition omitting mention of Father, Word, and Spirit, in which especially the Catholic faith is strengthened and the unity of substance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is attested. So Jerome as he's writing in this prologue, he says there are people who are actively pursuing the removal of certain things from the text and he specifically cites 1 John 5, 7, and 8 as an example of the active attempts to remove certain things from the text. Now this puts us in an interesting place. If you've ever done any research online about the King James Version, which if you do that you know that we don't fall into much of the King James-only online world, you'll find that one of the things King James-only f- people really don't like is the Roman Catholic Church, Jerome's Latin Vulgate, and Augustine. All right? These are people that that, 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 that wing of, of, of our circles really don't like. What's interesting is that if I turn to the beginning of my Bible, you won't have this in yours, and I read, not just in the beginning of a King James, there's the, trans, the, the translator's preface to, to the, the, um, uh, the, the, the preface to King James. But then there's also a, translations, a translator's preface to the reader. And in that preface to the reader, which is not in most of our Bibles, but it is in, in my Bible among some others, they speak regularly of their respect for Jerome and for his translation. They speak regularly of their respect for Augustine and the foundation that he laid for theology in the church. And so as we look to understand a consistency of translation, we actually find ourselves in a place where Jerome's scholarship and faithfulness to the text in translating the Latin Vulgate informs us of something that the Greek manuscripts that came out of the Eastern Orthodox Church and are the ones that we find throughout the, the Eastern Europe, through, throughout that region of the world, where Jerome's text might actually draw us to a measure of clarity and accuracy that the Greek text simply cannot. So that while it is absolutely true that we only find it in eight out of 501 or 11 out of 501 manuscripts that are in the Greek. It's also in 7,800 of the 8,000 Vulgate texts in the Latin. And that falls back to the 4th century where Jerome, as he was beginning the work on that text, acknowledges that there are people trying to take this very passage of Scripture out of the Bible. Quite possibly speaking about the Eastern, the Aryan controversy that was happening in the East at the same time he was translating his Vulgate. Because they both happened in the fourth century. Now, Pastor, does that mean that our understanding of God's word breaks down? I mean, how often do we fall back upon these Greek manuscripts as, as the, the argument for these things? Well, no, it doesn't. As I said. Number one, we're not looking for 100% certainty here. We're looking for maximum confidence. But number two, God is certainly capable of working in amazing ways so that if history is going to, if an entire group of people is going to, to, to seek to remove something from the text for some political and theological reason, that God can certainly see fit to use even the Roman Catholic Church to preserve a portion of the text that gives us a traceable lineage of that text all the way back to the 4th century and to give us a traceable argument for that text to be left in our Bibles from the 4th century, which, by the way, is older than any manuscript that we rely on for our King James Bible today. Pastor, you're making a leap. Maybe I am. Not trying to convince you per se. I'm just trying to give you some rationality here. So the first place then that we broaden our understanding of where this text does find its way into history is in the Latin. And we can actually go back before Jerome's Vulgate to the Old Latin and see some witness there as well. This is called the Old Latin translation. We see those translations date back to about 150 AD, which is really, really old. And these manuscripts fall into two broad categories, or two broad families. There's the African Manuscripts and the European manuscripts. The vast majority of the witness that we have is from those European manuscripts. Not many of those exist in the Old Latin. Even fewer have 1 John intact. But where we do find 1 John in Old Latin manuscripts, the comma is there. Hybert said that it wasn't there. Well, why did he say that? Because when he said that, there was not an Old Latin manuscript that had 1 John in it. (laughs) So, again... It's kind of a tricky way to say it. No old Latin manuscript has, first, has the comma in it. Well, no old Latin manuscript to that point in scholarship had First John in it. Now we found some. It has the comma. Tradition would be carried over again into Jerome's Vulgate, where, as I said, of the, of the 8,000 or so Vulgate manuscripts that we do find today, 7,800 of them contain the comma. Going beyond on the Roman Catholic Church, let's root this in a little bit of Baptist tradition, shall we? Baptist history does not, we don't characteristically trace our history through the Reformation, right? The Reformation is, is the history through which came the Calvinists and the Lutherans and, and, and such, but, but Baptists don't characteristically trace their history through the Reformation. Indeed, the Reformers were very active at killing Anabaptists in their day. Um, The Augsburg Confession uh, in many Lutheran churches still speaks of damning the Anabaptists to hell for every generation. And um, that that is still something that contemporarily is is quoted in Lutheran churches today against the Anabaptists. Uh, Calvinists would burn Anabaptists at the stake. So Anabaptists, uh, we don't necessarily plant our feet in the Reformation because those Reformation guys really hated us. We tend instead to trace our history through a few other groups of people. We can trace our history through people such as the Mennonites, the Anabaptists, of course, the Moravians, and then this group of people, a fairly ancient group of people as best we can tell, called the Waldensians. The Waldensians were given their name much later in history, in the in, in, in 1100, somewhere around there, uh, by a man whose last name was Waldo, not the Where's Waldo uh, fame, but um, but but a man named Waldo. However, we can trace the people that were the Waldensians well before that. As a matter of fact, we believe that we can probably trace the Waldensians all the way till the times of Nero, which were the times where the apostles were still living. And these Waldensians, a very ancient group of people, Christians that some believe were driven out of Rome during Nero's persecution. And they cloistered themselves in a a portion of the empire where they could just be left alone. Others claim that they formed in the fourth century after a break with the Pope over the secularization, uh, secularization of Christianity. Either way, 4th century, that's the time of the Vulgate, that's the time of the, the Aryan controversy. We're talking, this is, this is pretty early on here. Regardless, they were a group of separatists. They came out from a corrupt church-state system because of their desire to remain faithful to the Scriptures. And they were declared heretical by the Pope in 1215, so we know they were around then. Often considered to be proto-Protestants in a way. Again, though they never took part in the Reformation. Due to their separatist tendencies, they were incubated from many of the typical influences of politics and theology that would be both within the Western Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church throughout those centuries. And again, there's more history here than I can possibly relate. In the time that we have together, I'm already going to be keeping you a little bit late this evening. My apologies. I won't be grumpy if you have to walk out the door. But the Waldensians maintained incubated copies of the text for centuries. By the way, I know most of you stay here till 10 talking on a Sunday night anyway, so I guess I'm not that concerned. But what they did is they kept these texts, and they kept them completely apart from the Eastern Greek text. Even apart from the Western Vulgate, the texts that we find have more in common with the old Latin script uh, uh, translations than even with the Vulgate. So these are old texts. They, they're not old necessarily in age because they'd be retranscribed, right? And then they'd burn the old copies. We've talked about that before. Why did they burn the old copies? For the same reason we burn a flag when we're retiring it. Respect. Right? You don't want copies of the Bible being eaten by moths somewhere. That's, that's not respectful. So you translate the copy, you transcribe the copy, excuse me, then you burn the old copy. So you have a bunch of new copies of a very old text, of a pre-Vulgate text. And what we find is that when we look at these Waldensian Bibles, they have the comma. And beyond all of this, we do also find some early church father evidence. I'm not going to give you all of it this evening. But there was a North African bishop in 250 AD named Cyprian. Many of people are familiar with Cyprian. In one of his sermons, he says this, He who breaks the peace and the concord of Christ does so in opposition to Christ. He who gathereth elsewhere than in the church scatters the church of Christ. The Lord says, I and the Father are one. And again, it is written of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. That's from 1 John 5, 7. And so we see Cyprian speaking in a way that he didn't quote it, right? He didn't put verse, chapter and verse to it because they didn't have chapter and verse at the time. But he said the words that we only find one place in our Bibles, and that's 1 John 5, 7. So there is some measure of understanding here that, okay, maybe he was talking about something else. Maybe he was talking about Jesus and John when John says, when Jesus says in John, I and my Father are one. Maybe. But it's not irrational for us to think that Cyprian was connecting this to 1 John 5, 7 here. So we find that while there's not much Greek manuscript evidence for the comma, though, let me come back to this for just a moment. Text critics have changed the text for less. We argue that 8 or 11 out of 501 manuscripts is insufficient to warrant something being put into the text or taken out of the text. However, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, the critical text changes the name Jesus Christ to just Jesus on the authority of 24 manuscripts. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, the critical text changes the form of a word on the authority of just 12 manuscripts. That's only one more than what we're dealing with. And if we go outside of 1 John, the critical text changes the phrase wisdom is justified of her children, which Jesus spoke of, to wisdom is justified of her works, on the authority of only three manuscripts. And while I admit that none of those changes are nearly as dramatic as what we see in 1 John 5, so we can't necessarily make an apples-to-apples comparison there, 1 John 5, 7, and 8 is a lot more dramatic and a lot more important than one word here and, and, and one form of a word there. We acknowledge that. But the changes have been made with much less evidence that argument is not necessarily one that that holds complete water as it relates to textual criticism. But back to my point. While there isn't much Greek manuscript evidence, there is historical precedence both to the existence of it early on, the comma, and to why it might be that there's not a lot of Greek evidence. Because there was this theological controversy in the 4th and 5th centuries A.D. in the Eastern Orthodox Church, whereby they sought to purge every last corner of the church of Trinitarianism. And that's actually a fairly good historical reason why we might not find 1 John 5, 7, and 8 in the Greek. But we do find it in in the Latin, in the Vulgate, and in the Old Latin. And... And at this point, I'd love to take you to the text and to show you what the Greek says here. Again, I'm not going to do that this evening. But my final bit of evidence will be textual, and we'll consider that in a moment. First, however, I want to talk through the claims of how the comma made it into the Textus Receptus. If you're ever talking to someone about this, they're going to cite a general story as to how the comma found its way in. To the Textus Receptus, and the breakdown, the myth it, it, it goes something like this: The Textus Receptus was originally compiled by a man named Desiderius Erasmus, a 16th-century Catholic scholar, and he was a Catholic scholar. The man, um, there's a lot of evidence that he he was not very fond of the Pope. There's a lot of evidence that um, he was a rabble rouser and a um, a troublemaker in the Catholic Church in his day. Uh, however, he was a Catholic scholar. It was in Erasmus' third edition of the Textus Receptus that the comma was added to the text. And this, people will say, aha, first two editions, it's not there. The third edition, he added it. And as a general rule, the myth surrounding this goes in a couple of different directions. The first one, the mythological story, is that Erasmus was deeply criticized because he omitted the comma, Naturally the Catholic Church is very Trinitarian. They're seeing this Greek text. It does not have the comma. And all of a sudden, the Catholic Church, the, the leadership of the Catholic Church, its hackles are raised against Erasmus. And so they begin to criticize him. One of the, 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 the veins of this is Erasmus was a Catholic priest. He was under the thumb of, of the Pope, even though maybe that wasn't fully true. And so Catholic politics being what Catholic politics were, they said, put it in or die, put it in or be a heretic, put it, put it in or be defrocked. And he said, fine, I'll just put it in. Please don't destroy me. And that's the way it goes. I mean, considering the Catholic Church history, possible, right? Possible. Another way that they say it is that there was someone who came to Erasmus and said, Why isn't it in there? And Erasmus and they gave Erasmus so much trouble that he said, Look, if you can find but one Greek manuscript that has the comma in it, I will put it in the text. And then they say that they went out, forged a Greek manuscript, brought it back with the ink still wet, and he said, Oh, that that's it, okay, I'll put it in the text. That doesn't really hold water historically. Might even call it historical nonsense. However, what we do find is that Erasmus used five primary manuscripts to put this text together. Now, because he was a Catholic priest and he had the resources of the Catholic Church whereby he could go to monastery, to monastery, to monastery, we recognize that he had more than just five manuscripts that he consulted, only he had five primary ones that became the groundwork for this combination or compilation text. What we do see, though, is that by the third Um, He he was hesitant to put it in because there were not these these Greek arguments. But by the third edition, he had spoken to many other scholars. And of course, many of these other scholars would have been Catholic scholars. And as he spoke with these scholars, believe it or not, as much as the Catholic Church kind of gets this reputation of being anti-scholarship and even anti-science within what we call the Middle Ages, they really weren't. Even if you look into the history of Galileo and the the, the problems that they, they had with Galileo, it wasn't actually with his scientific model. It was that what he was doing in the time he was doing it, he had openly defied direct requests of the papacy as it related to the nature of his findings and how he was disseminating them. And that's what they got angry at him for. So they, they, they weren't quite the anti-science, anti, anti-scholarship group. Most of the scholarship uh, that, that our, uh, our, our understanding of the Word of God is founded on were, were Catholic scholars of those years. To one degree or another, so he spoke with many of them, and that is where they pointed him to this Vulgate evidence and the fact that the Vulgate uses it pervasively, going all the way back to Jerome, and that Jerome spoke to the reality that there were people trying to remove it from the text, and he was thus convinced in those uh, that 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 though they were not in these Greek manuscripts, that they had a right to be there. And you say, well, he, still, it was, it was entirely political. It must have been political. He was a Catholic priest. Well, well, there is this other bit of evidence. Erasmus put it into the text. But there was Stephanus, who was also an editor of Textus Receptus, four editions. There was Beza, who edited ten editions of the Textus Receptus. And there were the Elzevir brothers, who edited seven editions, in not even one of any of those editions was that even questioned as to whether or not it should be removed. So whatever, maybe lost to history, all of the arguments were for the comma to be put into the text. Erasmus, Beza, Stephanus, and the Elzer brothers all thought it should be there, and they weren't all Catholic priests, right? They were printers. Many of them were not even connected to the church. One final bit, and this is the one I alluded to last week when we were talking in verses 9 and 10. It's not going to be a Greek argument, but it it is an English argument. In 1 John 5, verses 6 through 9, to give you the whole context, the Bible says this, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the father, the word, and the holy ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his son. Notice here in verse nine, there is a reference in the text, and you can find this as well. If I were to open up, I actually didn't test this, so I'm hoping it's true. Uh, If I open up here to verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, this is the uh, New American Standard, right? If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has, has testified concerning his son. So we see it there as well. This is something that's in the critical Greek text also. And notice that this references both the witness of men and the witness of God here. And I mentioned last week, without John's testimony that there are three that bear witness in heaven, the statement of comparison between the witness of men, realized through the Spirit, water, and blood, and the witness of God makes no sense. What is the witness of God of which John speaks if 1 John 5, 7 is not in the text? Why would he all of a sudden bring up the witness of God if it's not in the text? It is an irrelevant reference. It's deeply out of place if we don't have the comma there into which to usher it into context. And this lends us, if nothing else, a measure of confirmation. That as we look through the history and we see the testimony of this comma in various places, and we see how much more of a rationale uh, in the context there is, if we look through the context, there's a rationale there that says, where is this witness of God that John's speaking of in verse 9 come from? Uh, he hasn't talked about, uh, about a, a witness of God uh, before that. All of this we put together to draw a fullness of testimony. Again, this is what I'm talking about, a flow, right? A flow Whereby we are able to have confidence that First John five seven and eight looks fine. It is what it ought to be. Again, is this one hundred percent certainty? No, it's not in a whole lot of Greek manuscripts. But do we have a measure of confidence? Can we have a measure of confidence as we walk through the history that even a, 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 a um, something that's not in these Greek manuscripts? that there's a reason why it may not be there and that God could have incubated from the Greek text through the Roman Catholic Church this Trinitarian doctrine. At least it's rational for us to believe that, right? And then what we do then within our, our system is we take that rationality, that flow, and we impose upon that flow the promises of God that he has preserved his word and kept it from every genera- for every generation, not from every generation, he has kept it for every generation. And we say, I can see how that flow happened. And I'm comfortable with that flow. And I can see why Erasmus might have put it into the text. And I'm, I'm maybe a little bit surprised, but I'm confirmed by the fact that Beza and Elzevir and Stephanus didn't take it out. And I see that flow, and then it finds its way into our text. And I'm comfortable with that. We do not have 100% certainty, but we also know that we don't stand on a baseless foundation. And within the scope of that broader faith position, that's enough. So let's apply this evening. As we think through history, my exhortation to you this evening is that we all guard ourselves against being reactionary. Ephesians 4 says that God gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and the pastor-teacher. And he did so specifically that they be not carried away by every wind of doctrine, right? That there's a measure of stability to the church of God. It's a common thing for us to be drawn away by arguments, uh, particularly in our age. It's a common thing for us to be drawn away by the, the fallacy that we call appeal to authority, more regularly, we hear it today as trust the experts, right? And while there's naturally always going to be a measure of faith that we put into people who know better than we do, right? We have faith. As we talk about the, the text, we have faith in those 66 men who were part of that translational committee that brought about the King James because they knew multiple languages and they were so well versed in the, in, in, in the texts of their day. They were versed in Hebrew. They were versed in Greek, but not just Hebrew or Greek. They were reading German translations. They were reading French translations. They were reading Latin translations. They were reading Spanish translations. Things that there's very few people on the entire face of the earth today that could even do outside of the technological advantages that we have today. And for those of you that have done any of, uh, of, of the talking through Greek with me, you know that opening up a Strong's Concordance and going to a Greek word and seeing a gloss of a Greek word is not, a, is, is not in any way comparable to understanding how a language flows. Idiomatic expressions, the nature of, of, of how language is used, very complicated subject, Right? And so we we do, to any degree, all of us do, trust these men and these women. We live in a time of wholesale breakdown of institutional credibility. And because of that, everything is a conspiracy. And it's very easy for us to say, well, you know, the King James translation, it does have King James's name on it. And, and uh, uh, he, he was the one that funded it. And, and, and he was a, a wicked king. And um, maybe it was even the King James versions a PSYOP, right? And whatever it might be, right? We, maybe, maybe. Maybe that's true. Maybe the only reason why King James wanted this version to be put into our hands is specifically so that he could control the narrative. But we've also seen throughout history, it's written all over the word of God, God's capacity to use wicked men to do things for him. In Jeremiah he calls Cyrus the Great my servant. It's an interesting name for Cyrus the Great. That guy is not the most righteous man history's ever recorded. God calls him my servant. And so we see that there's all sorts of reasons why we can argue for and against something. And in each of these cases, let us be careful. Let us be careful with hasty assumptions and observations. Let us be careful assuming upon reasons and motivations based upon things such as single-factor analysis, one side of the story. Be careful, Christian, when you come across people who are attempting to compel you to cast off foundations to move quickly into something new and different. Maybe what they have to say is right and true and good. Maybe it's not. We find that people and religions and systems, none of them are created in a vacuum. Not the vacuum cleaner for our little kids here, right? Ask your parents about what a vacuum is. There's a reason why the Roman Catholic Church did what the Roman Catholic did and does what it does. There's a reason why the Eastern Orthodox Church did what it did and does what it does. There's a reason why Lutherans do what they do and Methodists do what they do and we Baptists do what we do. And while some of us may be right and some of us may be wrong, we need to be careful with generalities because we find that many of the arguments that people will use, you've never heard them from my voice, from my mouth, but many of the arguments that people will use to put down other versions and to elevate the King James Version are actually undermined by the King James translators themselves in their preface to the reader. They're actually undermined by the fact that we need the Latin Vulgate if we're going to prove 1 John 5, 7, and 8 in our Bibles. And for all of the people who speak to the supremacy of the King James Version that would spit on the Latin Vulgate, spit on the Roman Catholic Church, God can use them too. So let's be careful. Let's be careful to not become too dogmatic, too chained to our own way of thinking, too chained to our own perspective, too chained to our own culture, that we fail to look abroad and see that the world is much bigger than we might give it credit. Simplicity is fun in the sense that if I can just boil everything down to something simple and easy, it, it kind of gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling that I can wrap myself in and say, it all just makes sense. But the world is rarely that way. God's not even that way. My children bring up semi-regularly their attempts to comprehend eternity. And they, the, the, where they're at with it now is the place that most of us are. They say, Dad... I can kind of get the no ending thing, but I'm really having a hard time with the no beginning thing. Me too. Right? If 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 God were just oh, really easy, we can put him into a box, everything makes sense and I get it all. That would be really nice, but that's that's not even our God. Much less history. That doesn't mean that there isn't a flow. That doesn't mean that we can't rest on sound doctrine. Uh, What I'm saying, I'm not saying that we make accommodation for error. I'm not saying that we allow those who bring heresy into the church to bring heresy into the church because, well, we we, we just can't really know. That's not what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, I'm saying the opposite of that. What I'm saying is this. Let's slow down the process of assertions and counter-assertions in the church. Let's avoid the fantastic and let's avoid the dogmatic. Specifically, so that truth has a time to season and the time necessary to assert itself upon conversations, upon movements, upon history. Not accommodating error, but allowing the truth to have time to speak for itself so that we can stay well-grounded and well-founded and we're not running to every fantastic or dogmatic statement that makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside because it confirms my preconceived assumptions and notions. And as with any example, so too it is with the Kama. And when all the vitriol and all the name calling and all the oh they're heretics and all the oh they don't understand and oh they don't lo- they 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 don't believe in, in inspiration and oh they don't believe in preservation and, oh they hate the, they 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 hate the Trinity or whatever it might be when all of that's done when all of that melts away we find a position that is this not a hundred percent certain position but this we know that God is three and one it's all throughout the scriptures we really don't need First John five seven to establish that truth. But we also find that not only does it agree with what we see in the Scriptures, but that it agrees with the flow of biblical inspiration and preservation that we have traced throughout our studies in history and of the text. And in doing so, as we slow the process down, as we allow it to speak for itself, we come to this place We don't need to split the church over it. We don't need to get really hot and heated and and angry over it. But we come to a place where we can still rest and say this. I'm going to be reading a lot of Bibles, maybe even some King James Bibles that have editor's notes that are going to say this shouldn't be there. And I'm going to read those and I'm going to say that's fine. They can believe that, but I don't. I believe it should be there. I'm going to treat it as such. I'm going to preach it as such. I'm going to believe it as such. And may that inspire us, if nothing else, to appreciate the Word of God all the more. And may I say it this way. If we're going to fight over it, in certain cases is appropriate, in other cases it's not. But if we're going to fight over it, if we're going to argue over it, if we at Legacy Baptist Church are actually going to stake our claim on this and say we believe the Word of God is true, We believe it's true from beginning to end. We believe God has inspired his word and preserved his word. And we believe it so much that as we've studied the history of the text, we are willing to to, to stand on the King James, even though that makes people look at us cross-eyed. And even though that makes people say, I'm not going to that church. We're willing to stand on that. Well, if we're willing to stand on that and we're willing to say, yes, we believe that this is God's holy word, then we better be, if nothing else, we better be willing to obey it too. Right? Right? So to whatever extent we want to become passionate about our love for the King James Version, for the text that undergirds it, and for our position in this banner of which we have confidence and we articulate, let us make sure that if we're going to fight for the text that much, we obey the text too. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.